Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Cabot, and uh, it's uh, come the time to uh, share the message with you, and I'm going to introduce our speaker in just a minute, but I uh, wanted to remind us of why we're going through Ezra and Nehemiah, two of the Old Testament historical books, uh, and just because sometimes Christians say, you know, it's not really, the Old Testament really doesn't matter, it's just the New Testament, and, and what we want to understand is that the New Testament rests on the foundation of the Old Testament, and the New Testament uh, illuminates the Old Testament so we can understand it better, and it all points to Jesus. Um, so that's why we're going through this, so we can better understand our Christian faith in, in regard with the Old Testament. Uh, so I want to um, introduce uh, Arthur Koch here, who is going to uh, bring uh, the message this morning. Arthur is uh, part of the team with Unlocking the Bible. I first met him when he was uh, working with uh, interns at the Orchard Network, and, uh, and he's also been a missionary in China and Singapore for five years. So Arthur, uh, please come and share with us. Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for that introduction, Pastor Cabot. In a moment, we, we are going to continue with our series on Ezra and Nehemiah. But before that, I just wanted to make a few comments. You know, first, I want to really give honor to your pastor, uh, Cabot Ashwell. And I'm confident that all of you know Cabot as the warm and gracious and visionary leader that he is. But I'm not sure you all know how much Cabot is valued and well thought of in the Chicagoland area. He, he's a servant. He serves other pastors. He himself develops uh, and builds up future ministry leaders. Uh, and he's a great blessing to the leadership of our denomination. So Pastor Cabot, on behalf of many who value you and um, who recognize what you're doing for the Lord, thank you for your ministry and your faithfulness. Second, I, I want to honor all of you uh, you know, this is no small thing that's happening right now in this room as we gather to worship the name of Jesus. Um, in this room, people, people from diverse backgrounds who were born uh, in many different places, people who were once hostile to God under his judgment and condemnation, people are gathered to lift his name high. And this is a miraculous, glorious thing. Listen, I grew up in church, so I know that we can take a morning like this for granted, just a regular, normal church morning. But Christ does not. He knows what it took for what's happening in this room right now to occur. It took everything. Do you know what God what Jesus thinks as he looks at all of you gathered here. He thinks it is all worth it. It is so worth it to win you, his bride, the joy of his heart, his treasure forever. Church, he loves you so much. And, and before we turn to God's word, I just want to take this moment to pray for you, um, to thank God for you, this community of his people here in Spring Grove. So uh, Life Spring Community Church, would you bow as I pray for you? <clears throat> oh, Father, thank you so much for this community of believers, men and women, children who are gathered in your name because of what your son, Jesus Christ, has done. 
Well, God, I pray for this church. Guard them, protect them, nourish them through your word, through your servants. Bless their faith. May it grow and flourish. God, I pray that this church would be a gospel light in the community, that many would come to know you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior through the faithful witness of the people in this church. God, thank you for the vision you've given to them. We lay it before your throne. Bless it. May it come to fruition that you might receive glory in this place and through these people. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles or your phones, uh, please turn to Ezra chapters 3 through 6. I do have the privilege of continuing the series that's been begun on Ezra and Nehemiah uh, last week. And uh, Pastor Cabot started this series by asking this very relevant question. You know, what significance do these two historical books have for our lives today in 2019? And certainly, one of the answers to that question is that these books reveal glorious truths about God. You know, last week you saw that these books reveal that God is sovereign. He moves the hearts of kings. He unfolds history according to his divine design. These books also show that God has a heart for restoration. He brought the people back into the land, and as these books unfold, he moves his people to restore the temple, to, uh, to restore the community of worship, rebuild the walls. These patterns of restoration point to the pattern, what God Christ does in our hearts right now, and his promise to complete and fulfill his redemptive and restoration purposes in his kingdom for eternity. So if you're a Christian, these books talk about your God. And that means that they have relevance for your life. But these books also talk about God's people. And that means we have much to learn in these books about how we pursue and express God's intentions in this world. Think about it. In these books, we see God's people at work. They've left behind their old lives and have set out to follow God's call. Now, in the promised land, they are working on God's restoration projects. They are God's people doing God's work under God's direction. And as we frame the experience of the Israelites like this, we can see that these books have tremendous relevance for our lives today as God's people. Like them, we have been called to step out in faith. Like them, we live in what can be a challenging and hostile environment. And we are working, not attempting to build heaven on earth, but to build his church and to build his kingdom. Ezra and Nehemiah give us a picture of God's people at work, and we have much to learn from their experience. So here's how we're going to approach our time this morning. I want to start by just giving you an overview of these four chapters of Ezra. Uh, Outline the content, make sure that we understand what's going on. And then I want to notice seven actions that effective Christian workers take as they give themselves to God's work. So a general overview, and then seven actions that effective Christian workers take. Uh, So let's get started. Now, remember where we are in the Bible story. 
Throughout the Old Testament, God's people have consistently run after other gods. So, after many warnings, God raised up the Babylonians to conquer Israel. The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem around 586 BC and deported the Israelites to Babylon, where they remained for about 70 years. Now, during those 70 years, Babylon was conquered by uh, the Medes and Persians, and the Medes and Persians had a different strategy for the conquered peoples than the Babylonians had had. Um, so, in Ezra 1, as you saw last week, Cyrus, the king of Persia, uh, issued a decree uh, allowing the Israelites to return to the Promised Land. And then in Ezra 2, you saw that long list of people who have set out on this journey back to Jerusalem. These people are under the leadership of Zerubbabel, who was from the line of King David. And this is a very diverse group, around 40,000 people. Some are older. They remember life in Jerusalem before it was destroyed. But many in this group are younger. They have been born in Babylon, a huge multicultural uh, foreign city. They only know stories of what Israel once was. Now, surely there is a deep level of faith among this group. They were willing to leave, right? Their established, perhaps even affluent lifestyle in Babylon to start over completely in a land that some of them had never seen. This group is dedicated. There's a fervency that's driving them. So when they arrive in Jerusalem, very quickly, they all gather in Jerusalem and give themselves to rebuilding the altar and laying again the foundation for a new temple. They reinstitute sacrifices and they celebrate the feasts. This is, this is an incredible moment. All of that happens in chapter three. But this group is still part of the Persian Empire. They do not have autonomy or really authority, even they're though they're going back to their own land. And so <clears throat> this all becomes um, kind of a geopolitical reality. There are issues that we see develop in chapters four through six. Um, that's because there are people who have been living in the land since the Israelites were deported 70 years before. Some are grandchildren of the Israelites who never left. Some are descendants of people that the Assyrians settled in the land when Assyria destroyed Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, in 722. So there's a mix of people that are living in the land when the Israelites arrive. And as the Israelites under Zerubbabel are starting to rebuild the temple, a group of these locals come to Jerusalem and say, let's help, uh, let us help. We worship God too, let us help you rebuild the temple. And Zerubbabel says, no way. You have no part in us, get out of here. Well, this does not sit very well with them. So all during the rest of the reign of Cyrus, these locals work to undercut the rebuilding efforts of the Israelites. And then after Cyrus dies, they send letters to the ensuing kings of Persia, uh, maligning the Israelites. <clears throat> Eventually they convince the Persian ruler, which the Bible identifies as Artaxerxes, to force the Israelites to stop 
the rebuilding projects. And so the Israelites have to obey. Uh, building stops, momentum stalls, frustration settles in. But as these chapters develop, we see that God's sovereign purpose still reigns. A few years later, the Israelites are able to convince the new king, Darius, to let them restart the work. And chapter 6 ends with the Israelites dedicating the new completed temple, celebrating the Passover to honor the Lord, uh, the God of Israel. So that's Ezra chapters 3 through 6. Now, what can we learn from these chapters? Now, as we said earlier, these chapters show us God's people at work, persevering in their efforts to build that which is honoring to God. So for our lives as Christians, let's notice together from these chapters seven actions that effective Christian workers take. Seven actions that effective Christian workers take. First, effective Christian workers link arms. They link arms with one another. We see this in Ezra 3.1, where we read, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. This means that they gathered together. They worked together to build the altar and lay the foundation of the temple in chapter three. <clears throat> Christians who seek to do God's work are not lone rangers. We work together to pursue God's purposes in the, in the world. If we take this principle seriously, it means that the normal pattern for Christians is to look at the ministries that other Christians are doing, especially in the church, and join them. And I know that LifeSpring is doing this. The Back to School Fest would not be happening if you were not linking arms to do this together. And we know that that is such a gospel witness to the community. When we work together, not only is the work of ministry less stressful and our impact is multiplied, but we express to the world the unity God intends for us to show. Effective Christians, workers, link arms. Second, effective Christian workers follow godly leaders. In Ezra 3 through 6, the people followed Zerubbabel, a leader from the line of David who knows the Lord and is passionate to see worship restored and God's law obeyed. Now, of course, we do not follow leaders blindly. As Christians, we look for godliness. We hold them accountable. But we know that there's a strain in our American culture that celebrates cynicism toward leadership. It's the easiest thing in the world to talk on the phone or sit on our couch and criticize leaders. We assume we know better. We smile knowingly at one another and, and roll our eyes at new policies or decisions or initiatives. My friends, if you want to be an effective Christian worker, Learn to follow directions. Yes, engage with your church leadership. Seek to understand decisions. Be involved and contribute to strategy. But as much as possible, give your leaders the benefit of the doubt. 
strive to support them. Make their ministry life a joy. Effective Christian workers follow godly leaders. Third, know God's word. Effective Christian workers know God's word. Throughout these chapters, it is clear that the rebuilding efforts were in accordance with the specific details that were recorded in God's word. Notice in, in Ezra 3 verse 2, we read, they built the altar of the, Lord, of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses. In 3 verse 4, they kept the feast of booths as it is written. And later in 3.10, we read that after the foundation of the temple was laid, the people took their places to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. So again and again in these verses, God's people are engaged with God's work according to God's word. And that's such an example for us. If we are to build that which is pleasing to God, let's know what God says. So for example, <clears throat> if you're part of a LifeSpring community group, a wonderful thing to do is to remind yourself, you know, what does God say Christian community looks like? You know, why not do a search online for that list of all the one another's of scripture? Passages like bear with one another in love from Ephesians, confess your sins to one another from James, serve one another from Galatians, and then take time as a group to remember together what God says in his word. Then you double your efforts to build community that reflects God's priorities. Effective Christian workers know God's word. <clears throat> Fourth, effective Christian workers exert themselves for the Lord. Put another way, effective Christian workers work. They put their hand to the plow, as Jesus says in Luke 9, 62. They live by the words of Jesus in John 9, 4, when he said, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. In Ezra, chapters 3 through 6, God's people are working. We can't pass over this. What's recorded in these people's lives, what lasts, what matters in the end, is what is done in the Lord's power for his glory. And the work that God calls us to do takes many forms. In building the temple, the people were welding, stacking bricks, carrying logs, laying foundation. When God called Adam and Eve to work the garden, it involved working the land. And these actions may not be the first thoughts we have when we think about doing work for the Lord. When I think about evangelism or Bible study and praying, yet the Bible tells us clearly that along with all those things, we do the mundane, everyday tasks of our lives for the Lord and in His power. So think about your work context might be sitting behind a desk, uh, answering emails, or working in a store, stacking shelves, or, or at home with kids. <clears throat> All of these can be done, of course, for the Lord, or not. And this is not easy. Our work is often full of thorns and thistles. 
but the Christian worker takes up her cross. The Christian worker puts his old self to death daily. We don't listen to the voice of our flesh or our culture saying that the goal of life is comfort or indulgence. We exert ourselves for the Lord. Fifth, effective Christian workers anticipate opposition. In Ezra 3 through 6, God's people are set upon by, from every side. Think about it. These local people in the land are actually expending effort to undercut the Israelites' rebuilding efforts. Don't you think these locals had plenty to take care of in their own busy lives? I mean, farming, they had their own roads to build, they had to take care of their own kids and families. But in these chapters, they are carving out time in their schedule to go over to Jerusalem and make the lives of God's people difficult. And what about the political climate? Surely in these chapters, God's people felt frustrated at times. I mean, things were not like they used to be when Israel was its own nation and those who loved God had the potential for influence. Now, they're really swung from one extreme to the other. You know, one administration supports them. The next administration is against them. What is going to happen next? Do you think that God's people in these chapters were tempted to hope for a supportive government? Do you think they pined for a different political climate? Of course they did. But what actually happens frames what our expectations in life are. See, God's word speaks to our world today. We have to realize, as much as we can hope for a supportive climate, this world is arrayed against the Lord. Our enemy prowls around like a lion. The effective Christian worker is not surprised when he's disparaged for doing what is right, when she is ridiculed for treasuring truth. The effective Christian anticipates opposition and does not let it derail a life of obedience or faithfulness. Sixth, effective Christian workers expect grief mixed with joy. You know, one of the most evocative sections of our narrative is Ezra 3, 11 through 12. The people have just laid the foundation for the temple, and, and here's what we read. And all the people shouted with a great joy when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses Old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So the young people, the younger people are celebrating, but the elders, the older people, are weeping. Why? Well, the text says they remember Solomon's temple from their youth. And this new temple is nothing like that. But I think it's even more than that. Surely these older people are remembering that their parents, their siblings, or friends were slaughtered when the first temple 
was destroyed. Surely what is coming to mind is all that was lost in 70 years of exile, the hopes and dreams of an entire generation. Surely they are staggered that this longed-for hope is, is actually happening right before their eyes, while at the same time they are overwhelmed with the nostalgia of all that might have been. See, I think this incident points us to something very profound and, and actually very, very difficult that every person has to face, every human. And that is that there is always grief mixed with joy in this world. There is always a sense of aching loss, even in the midst of, of soaring beauty, always. They can't be separated in this life. Now listen, I know this is going to sound really depressing for a moment, but, but stick with me. You know, there is this existential angst that we have to face. It's woven into the fabric of this world, this life as it is now. Every day of joy that you spend with your spouse is one day less that you spend with that person. The moments that you smile with your kids, you can't get them back. The days they slip through our fingers. And even if our life crescendos to unimaginable financial or personal or even spiritual success, in the end, we will die. Now, at this moment, you're probably thinking, I'm so glad I came to church this morning. Thanks a lot, Arthur. <clears throat> but here's why I share all that. We aren't in paradise. We can't be effective workers for the Lord if we walk through life with rose-colored glasses. There will be a sense of loss, even anticlimax, even as we pour ourselves out for Christ in this world. That's what we can expect. Until Christ returns or we go to him, we still live in this body, we still face death, we still struggle with sin. So as long as we live in this world, we have to expect grief mixed with joy. But this world is not all there is. And the seventh and final action that effective Christian workers take is to hope in Christ. We hope in Christ. See, as Christians, we taste the grief mixed with joy. We know this world has challenge, but we also know we're part of a bigger story. We know that Christ has come. And because of that, one day our griefs will be turned to joy. He became the man of sorrows so that sorrow would not always be present. He wept so our tears would be wiped away. And he gave his life so we might receive his reward. This is the peace that was missing for the Israelites. In our chapters, they are striving. They're working. But what was the result? Weeping in the midst of joy? At the end of chapter 6, the people finally complete the temple, but there's no record that God's glory ever fills it. They celebrate the Passover, but as these books unfold, it's clear their hearts have not been changed. Later, they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but the nations do not stream to the city as the prophets foretold. The glory of the Lord does not cover the earth. The entire narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah calls us 
to look forward to one who will pull these strands together and bring fulfillment to God's plan of salvation. And of course, in the fullness of time, Christ came. He is the true temple, God's presence among us. He is the true Passover lamb. He is the one who will draw all people to himself. And see, if we have Christ, if we are able to hope in him, even in the midst of our work, and to trust his finished work, this changes all of the nature of our work for him in this life. Now we don't work to earn his favor. We work because he has set his favor on us. And our confidence is not in ourselves. It's not in what we can accomplish or the results we can see. Our confidence is in him. He has already accomplished the work of salvation. And we know that he will ultimately complete all that God intends to do. Effective Christian workers know that we can't hope for everything in this world, but we know that in Christ, when we hope in Christ, we have been given eternity. So, brothers and sisters, what have we seen today? We have seen that like the Israelites in Ezra, we have been called out to leave everything behind to follow Christ. We've been called to do his work, to be about his business, building and restoring under his direction. And as we work, we link arms with other Christians, we follow godly leaders, we know his word, we exert ourselves for him, we anticipate opposition, we expect that in this life there will be grief mixed with joy, and we put our ultimate hope in Christ, both the source of our strength and the treasure of our souls. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, we look to you in hope. We know that the pain of this life, death and all that we see mixed into our deepest moments, these would be too much for us if you were not present, if you had not come to redeem your people, to change the story. Lord, we long to have eyes to understand what you call us to do, to do your work according to your ways. We pray that your word would nourish our hearts and a vision, Christ, of you would sustain us, that we might serve you faithfully and do all you have called us to do in your power. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.